Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Neoliberal Macron wins France election, but far-right Le Pen increases vote share. This is according to Common Dreams. French President Emmanuel Macron won a second five-year term on Sunday, but the neoliberal incumbent's victory over far-right challenger Marine Le Pen was significantly closer than it was in 2017, portending an ominous future for the country in the absence of far-reaching egalitarian reforms. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So Macron received a projected 58 percent of the vote to Le Pen's 42, becoming the first French president since 2002 to be reelected. His 16 point margin underscores how much ground Le Pen openly xenophobic and Islamophobic has gained since the previous election. Macron beat her 66 to 34. Two things. First, you told us a few weeks ago that Le Pen did not have to win, that she just needed to make a strong showing, that that in and of itself would be a victory. Second, do you see any parallels between how much ground Le Pen gained with her openly xenophobic and Islamophobic rhetoric, the ongoing support for Trumpism in the United States, and the politics of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil? Well, certainly there are parallels in terms of these factors and these candidates and politicians that you've mentioned. What I also pointed out in this program a few weeks ago after a column by Paul Krugman in the New York Times, where he was seeking to make a similar parallel, but he pointed out that Madame Le Pen was much stronger on pocketbook than Mr. Macron. And to me, that's a contrast with the United States of America. It's difficult to say that Mr. Trump is stronger on pocketbook issues with regard to his middle class and Euro-American working class constituency. And one does not have to be an oracle to suspect that the Trumpistas have a, a longer game, whereas step by step, they would like to return U.S. society to a kind of de facto apartheid. But in any case, I think that Mr. Macron would do well to look over his shoulder, uh, given the numbers that have come out of this election. Uh, that is to say, it was the smallest turnout since 1969 in a French election. And as well, this is my next prediction, and we can validate it in a few weeks, uh, the so-called third round of the French national elections will be taking place in June. Mr. Melenchon, the candidate of the left, only finished a few percentage points behind uh, Madame Le Pen. 
In fact, if you total up the votes in the first round of the French elections a few weeks ago, of Mr. Melanchon, the socialists, the Greens, the communists, etc., it's more than 50%. And so one does not have to be a PhD in mathematics to suggest or predict that there is a distinct possibility that after these June parliamentary elections in France, that there might be that staple of French politics, that is to say cohabitation, whereas the president is of one political formation and the parliament, and most importantly, the prime minister, is of another political formation, I would hope and imagine that the left is going to put its shoulder to the wheel and you may wind up with a socialist-minded prime minister coupled with the neoliberal Macron. Now, that is a possibility, but in any case, to move away from the numbers and to talk about how we weigh votes, because votes are not only counted, they're weighed, certainly it seems to me that Mr. Macron is going to have to pay careful attention to the fact that uh, perhaps a majority of French voters did not want him. They only voted for him, as he acknowledged in his acceptance speech last night, to block Madame Le Pen. And therefore, he would do well to pay attention to the message that's coming from the left, which is, A, domestically, to move away from those neoliberal policies, which Madame Le Pen, at least rhetorically, and certainly the left programmatically, uh, soundly and roundly reject. And then, with regard to French foreign policy, uh, it's no secret that there has been a deep-seated antipathy to U.S. imperialism in France, stretching back decades. It has yet to disappear. On the surface, this dovetails with Mr. Macron's own predilections for strategic autonomy from NATO, dominated by U.S. imperialism, a NATO he has denounced previously as brain dead. And so I would hope and imagine that Mr. Macron would, for example, listen to the message that's coming from certain commentators in China who look at the crisis in Ukraine and make the prediction that it will weaken the European Union, that it will strengthen U.S. imperialism to the detriment of of the European Union, strengthen U.S. imperialism to the detriment of the European Union, and also strengthen China. Now, keep in mind as well that Madame Le Pen, one of her foreign policy nostrums, was that she was skeptical of the Ukraine imbroglio because she felt that it was leading to a Russia-China entente, which, you know, happens to be true. And so Mr. Macron would be well advised to adapt his foreign policy, understandably and necessarily, to take account of the wishes of the French electorate, although he may not do so because, as we've said more than once on this program, French imperialism is heavily dependent upon U.S. imperialism as the guarantor of world imperialism, particularly vis-a-vis the French neo-empire in Africa, which, of course, is up in arms as we speak against Paris.
Another article of interesting, Economic Watch, European economy bears brunt of sanctions blowback. To continue um, on this, uh, you know, line of discussion, how does the economic situation and the economic deterioration affect um, politics, not just in France, but moving forward in Europe? Well, Europe is in a crisis, as the commentators from China suggest. Uh, pay attention to the point that uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of, the, of a wing of the European Union, a, a kind of de facto prime minister of the European Union, is in India as we speak, offering all kinds of emoluments uh, to India, uh, trying to bail out the European Union, number one, and trying to uh, wean India away from Russia and China, number two. Now, what's interesting is that India, in some ways, is the bell of the ball. It's being wooed by the United States, by the European Union. Uh, even the Chinese foreign minister turned up in New Delhi a few weeks ago. But I don't think that India is quite willing to break its close alliance with Russia, which in some ways leaves the European Union stranded and out on a tree limb. And certainly the rising energy prices in Europe are going to compromise the European economy, uh, not only in terms of the price of gasoline at the pump, but also natural gas. And so once again, uh, the European Union has been played for chumps by Uncle Sam. And what I find continually astonishing is that they continue to go along with this. But of course, we all know, as regard to what we just said concerning France, that the European Union imperialists are ultimately dependent upon U.S. imperialism as a guarantor for world imperialism, and that seems to outweigh everything else, including the viability of European Union imperialism itself. So talk about the projected lasting impact here, and I think what we, what just transpired in France is an example. Uh, there, there was a piece that said this vote shows that what happened in France was a choice between an evil and the cause of that evil. And so as we get into the summer, as the impact of these sanctions play themselves out just in the everyday practical lives of working class people, whether it be in the United States or whether it be in the European Union, I think it's only going to be much, much, much more difficult for a lot of these governments that were backing the United States play here to to hold their um, to to hold their their groups together. Well, what you're underscoring is what has been occupying the attention of many on both sides of the Atlantic. Coalition. That's the word I was looking for. To hold their coalitions together. Go ahead. Right. And that was exposed by the recent statement in Kiev by Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin, which he said that the purpose of the United States is to weaken Russia. So now we see that not only does European, not only does the United States imperialism uh, plan to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian, they made plan to fight Russia to the last European Union national. And What's striking about that is this is obviously going to introduce and sharpen fissures within the European Union. As we've said before, already you see splits between uh, Germany on the one hand and France, the locomotive of the EU, 
and Poland, on the other hand, and the Baltic republics, on the other hand. Uh, that is to say that the latter nations, uh, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Latvia, uh, who are basically welfare recipients from the European Union, are somehow acting like the tail that's wagging the dog. That's an unsustainable proposition. I don't expect it to last, which means, of course, that the European Union is headed for a major crisis with consequences too complicated, too complex, and perhaps even too ghastly to contemplate. What's about to befall economically the, the European Union? In some, you know, you can argue that it's strengthening the U.S. in that it will weaken them and the U.S. will have more control, but can't you also argue that it will weaken the U.S. as part of its, the major part of the U.S. empire's coalition? If it falls, won't the, the empire be weaker? Well, certainly that is a distinct possibility. But I think that Washington is looking over the EU shoulder like a male chauvinist visitor to a party and eyeing China rather nervously. In other words, the EU is just a poker chip in a larger game. And there is a possibility that U.S. imperialism will be weakened as a part of this conflict. But as Washington surveys the landscape, they see that U.S. imperialism was in decline in any case. And that, it seems to me, has led to this riverboat gamble in the Ukraine, because from their point of view, uh, that somehow will strengthen Washington for the ultimate confrontation with Beijing. I think implicit in what you've just said is that the EU sees themselves as that poker chip and is willing to allow themselves to be played. So, but if these uh, sanctions impact these economies and with the tenuous nature of, of, of parliamentary uh, arrangements, Macron doesn't want to see himself thrown out be, through a vote of no confidence. Olaf Scholz doesn't want to see himself thrown out through a vote of no confidence. So I, I think implicit in this is a shift in mindset of European Union leaders that says, we're not going to allow ourselves to, to be a, a poker chip in this, in this high-stakes game. Well, that's a possibility. But let me raise another possibility, perhaps more grandiose, which is that even before February 24, 2022, and the Russian intervention, there had been a lot of talk in both Brussels and Washington about the ultimate consolidation. That is to say, a kind of consolidation between the U.S. and the E.U., as a way to better confront the arising entente between Beijing and Russia. Mm. I think that that kind of talk will come out of the shadows, come out of the closet. You will hear more about that. Okay. And that's the ultimate bad news for the U.S. working class. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
The Washington Post reports the United States says Russia failing in war aims on the heels of the first visit by high-level U.S. officials to the Ukrainian capital since Russia's invasion. Secretary of State Blinken told reporters that Russia is clearly failing in its war aims and that Ukraine is succeeding, while Defense Secretary Austin said the U.S. wants to see Russia weakened to the point where it can't do things like invade Ukraine. How much of this is based upon facts on the ground and how much of this is wishful thinking? And thank you, Lloyd Austin, for the clarity that you provided. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. Mark, as always, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So help me out with some of these statements. Russia is clearly failing in its war aims and Ukraine is succeeding and provide the analysis there in the context of another Washington Post article, same day, in Mariupol, echoes of history, utter devastation, and a last stand. If this is a last stand, which the Ukrainians are losing and by all accounts will lose shortly, then I don't understand, Mark, how Russia can be failing and Ukraine succeeding. Yeah, it's kind of a um, switching the goalposts for Russia's aims, i.e. Russia makes very public uh, particular aims for its war mm -hmm. and, um, you know, demands for the U.S.-backed Kiev regime for a peace settlement. Then we change those goalposts by saying that what Russia really says they want is not what they really want. Here's what they really want. They really want to um, uh, conquer Kiev uh, and take over the whole country. And then you can say that Russia is failing in its war aims. Now, um, I think that if the Kiev regime had buckled under the first few days due, due to, uh, you know, the, the the external intervention and the internal dissent and and um, uh, contra uh, contradictions that probably would have expanded Russia's war aims. But as such, they continue to be focused on the east of the country, i.e. Um, helping the Donetsk and Lugansk National Republics, which Russia has recognized, take back the rest, the rest of their territory and to degrade the Kiev regime uh, military, its armed forces, until it can no longer do damage uh, to the Donbass. Um, I think that they have expanded somewhat, actually, um, particularly in the south of the country, uh, uh, the Kherson region, where Russia has had a great deal of success. Um, I think that there probably was a decapitation strike uh, towards Kiev, uh, kind of a Hail Mary pass in the opening a uh, uh, couple days of the um, intervention, uh, that didn't work. So, I mean, it, it's a mixed uh, record uh, and not 100 percent success in the non-stated war aims. Uh, but I would say 
uh, fairly good progress, i.e. a territory the size of the great the British Isles, including Ireland, uh, has come under uh, the authority of the Donbass republics and Russia. Meanwhile, to claim that the Kiev regime is meeting its war aims, well, I guess if you would count the survival of the regime as the principal war aim so far, they're succeeding in that. Beyond that, I don't see how they have had much success. The Kiev regime's armed forces are are not capable of any significant offensive or counteroffensive. They're they're restricted to pinprick and asymmetric strikes of opportunity. That is that is not a military that is is winning. The regime might be winning because they have not fallen yet, but that's the best that can be said. Um, as for the U.S., they are winning because their stated war aim is to weaken Russia, according to the U.S. Secretary of Defense. And in that, they are effectively bleeding Russia by keeping the Kiev regime uh, in the fight with with, you know, just uh, continual 24 seven arms shipments uh, across the border from uh, Europe into Western Ukraine. I do feel the other part of it is this. I think in a way, understanding that Russia saw this as an existential threat and, you know, kind of when you're back into a corner, you're going to fight in any way you can to get out of that corner. And once you get out of the corner, you'll rethink things. But the idea is if I don't get out of the corner alive, there ain't no point worrying about, <laughs> worrying about this fight anyway. So I see it as a, a fundamental either misunderstanding or deliberate self-serving interpretation of what Russia is trying to accomplish, which means which which to me, again, reveals something. Two things. Russia is in this thing because they know that they feel as though they have to take kinetic action to protect their border, whereas the U.S. is like, OK, we're going to do an info war. We're going to interpret. We're going to do public relation things. We're going to convince our populations and people of X. And it's the difference between one group living in a reality-based um, physical world where they have to take actions in the physical world and accomplish those physical actions. And another simply saying we're going to work in the uh, cyber world and the world of discussion and philosophy and things of that nature to win a somehow war in people's minds. Your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, I mean, there's been no question since the beginning, right? You know, particularly in the English language, right? The English language dominated uh, English, or you know, the the Western state affiliated social media that that the Ukraine, uh, the Kiev regime, with uh, the West's assistance, is overwhelmingly winning that information war in their own information space. Okay, that's that's taken for granted. But here is where we have a problem with this uh, uh, the expectations for the uh, false reality compared to facts on the ground that they are creating. They're saying that Russia is losing uh, the war. Ukraine is winning the war again, despite facts on the ground, right? Uh, a, a overall picture. And when that perception is no longer manipulable, i.e. when it becomes readily apparent that the Kiev regime is losing the war when the, the, the full extent of the Donbass has been recovered and then Russia 
makes a decision where to continue the intervention next, right? If the Kiev regime hasn't uh, agreed to Russia's diplomatic demands, then we reach a crisis point where those expectations have been completely ruined and there's pressure on the West to intervene. What happens then? And Alastair Crook, the former British diplomat, has an excellent piece uh, out uh, just today on the dynamics of escalation standing with Ukraine, talking about you know when that 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 point of expected reality fails, how much pressure is going to be on NATO countries to directly intervene, perhaps in the west of the country. That's been the question that I've been asking, I guess, for about the last week as the United States has been escalating weapons shipments into Ukraine and a lot of those weapons have been intercepted and and destroyed. But uh, that, you know, at some point, Zelensky's got to make a very hard decision because reality is going to be reality and he's just not going to be able to avoid it. And so at that point where he gets to the point where he cries uncle, then what happens? Because the United States is not going to let him walk away. The Azov brigade is is going to say they're going to hang him from a tree. So where does the United States go at that point? Yeah, that's that's the question. I don't know so much that Zelensky has the agency to even make that choice. I, I think he, he won't even, you know, he is essentially an actor. He is an actor. He is a comedian, right? And he is fulfilling a role. I don't even think he will publicly be allowed to make to, to make that choice when the time comes. The question is, what does the West do when they can no longer maintain the fiction that the Kiev regime is winning the war? When when the East has you know uh, been uh, completely liberated from uh, the Kiev regime that seized power in 2014's forces, and then Russia makes its decision because it does have that agency and choice uh, what to do and where to go next if its political demands are not met. Does NATO intervene in the west of Ukraine then? How much political pressure is on them? Um, because I, I certainly don't believe that Azov or the other far-right battalions, right sector, Carpathia Siege, C-14, they're not going to give up. They will they will fight a bloody insurgency for years if necessary, but I I, I do not think that uh, an insurgency is the extent. I think that because of the um, absolutely hysterical uh, media and information space war that has been waged, I think that the perception element has become crucial and that the West has created a situation where it cannot be seen as losing Kiev at this point. And that becomes very dangerous because credibility is something that the U.S. very much fights and continues wars over. Is it willing to do that with Russia in Ukraine? There are a couple of things that this conversation brings to mind, and that is I think we're starting to see pushback on that. There's an article in The Independent today um, about within the last day or so about a general baron, I believe his name, is saying to the U.K. parliament, 
we do not have the military wherewithal to go toe-to-toe with Russia right now, we would lose. We see, I believe it's Olaf Scholz saying, our priority for NATO is not to get involved in a kinetic war with Russia. So I think the what we're the discussion that we're having is probably already being had, and there's the pushback is already coming out saying, uh-uh, this is not something that we want to do. What are your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, that is from a, a number of Europeans. It has to be said that that is not coming from Boris Johnson, the British uh, uh, Minister of Defense, uh, and it's certainly not coming from Elena Baerbach, uh, who is the seemingly dominant uh, uh, foreign policy minister with the pants on in that government now in Germany. Uh, but it is not taking place either in the United States. And we have seen comments from the U.S. Secretary of Defense that, again, that that he thinks, one, his goal is to weaken Russia, right, to bleed it no matter what. And, uh, you know, he claims that, that the, the Kiev regime is winning its war aims and Russia is losing them. And we all know that that NATO is is little more than uh, the United States is client states. Uh, so. Um, I'm afraid that what is being said in Washington, D.C. by the blah, by the Biden administration matters far, far more than a few dissenting voices in London or or Berlin or Brussels. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Scott Morrison says Chinese military base in Solomon Islands would be red line for Australia. Scott Morrison says China building a military base on Solomon Islands would be the red line for Australia and the United States but did not say how Australia would respond if, in fact, that were to happen. What does this mean for the dynamic going forward? And are these really veiled threats? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, Ken, welcome back. Hey, glad to be here again. So there are concerns about a recently signed security agreement between China and Solomon Islands and what that could mean for Australia and other Pacific countries, especially if China uses the deal to expand its military presence in the region. That last part of the statement to me is the basis of my question, uh, because how much of this is Australia and the U.S projecting and inflating this into more than it really is. Well, since both the government of the Solomon Islands and the government of China have given public statements that neither of them have any intention of having a military base be constructed in the Solomon Islands, it does seem that there's a certain 
exaggeration or anticipation on the part of, uh, of Australia and the United States about this. Uh, obviously, uh, the idea that the Solomon Islands are a sovereign country that has the right to pursue its own foreign policy, to have its own relations with other countries, is uh, not really hasn't that really hasn't sunk in with uh, with the Americans or the Australians, and so the idea that uh, Solomon Islands and China might have a relationship uh, of their own uh, is something that, that that they've it's gotten these guys all all wound up, and uh, you know we had we had to send diplomats to the Solomon Islands from the United States to berate them. Uh, the Australians are uh, obviously enjoying a little extra saber rattling here. Uh, so, yeah, I think that this is largely a projection, uh, a, a, a fantasy on the part of, uh, of the Aussies and the Yanks, you know, of, of uh, any change in the situation that moves any piece on the chessboard out of the total control of the U.S. alliance, uh, you know, the U.S. empire. Is uh, is just not acceptable. The other thing here is it, that it, it, you know this is the Rubio, the rules based international order that is completely hypocritical, hypocritical and, and hegemonic, because. When the U.S. says, if Solomon Islands does X, that's our red line. An obvious question comes to me, Dr. Hammond. Does the Solomon Islands have a right to a red line? Don't, as an independent sovereign nation, don't they have a right to say, you telling us what we, we can do on our property is a red line? Because what the U.S. And, and, and Australia are saying is, in our minds, we live in the world of fangs and claws. We are Neanderthal, and whoever has the biggest fangs and claws can decide what's right and wrong. But the question I would obviously ask them is, Tony Blinken— Scott Morrison, does the Solomon Islands have a right to a red line as an independent sovereign nation or only the ones with the big military has a right to a red line, Dr. Hammond? Well, clearly, uh, it's it's the latter because, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that's what's that's what's being played out here, despite your your somewhat irreverent characterization of the Neanderthals, I have to say. But uh, uh, leaving that aside. Yeah, you know, this is a classic exercise. The United States has has long considered uh, the entire Pacific Ocean as, uh, you know, uh, sometimes even they, they, they people have gone out of their way to call it an American lake. You know, the idea that that's our turf. And, of course, the Australians are our nice, compliant little junior partners uh, in this. And so they're going to they're going to be kind of the local boys on the block out there, you know, and, 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 and make these make these tough sounds. But it's really, you know, the American empire that's at stake here. And of course, you know that's a that's a, a fading shell, uh, and and uh, and that has the that has the dominant elites within the United States totally flipped out, totally freaked out, and so, you know, it's I mean, as I said before, you know, neither the Solomon Islands government nor the Chinese have given any indication. In fact, they've said quite clearly the opposite. They're not building military bases here. This is an agreement that allows the two countries to cooperate on some security issues that are of mutual concern and, and apparently, in their opinion, of mutual benefit. Solomon Islands are a sovereign country. They're members of the United Nations. They're not under the control uh, of the United States or of Australia, although clearly both the United States and Australia think that they are, that they should be, and that we can tell them, we can dictate to them that you can do this or that, a fundamental contradiction of the whole concept of sovereignty. Didn't we hear this narrative a couple of months ago? I think it was coming out of Vietnam, 
Vietnam and China. Cambodia. 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 Thank you. They were going to build that base. Vietnam and Cambodia and uh, China came to an agreement that China was going to help Cambodia dredge its port so that larger ships would be able to come into the port. And the United States cried foul and said, here you go. Uh, uh, You're about to build a military base. And uh, Cambodia said, no, we just want to be able to do more trade. And again, the United States, this is a threat, and we're not going to allow this to happen. Well, we've touched base on this on a number of issues. There's also, there was a big kerfuffle a few months ago that we talked about with the Chinese uh, uh, doing some, uh, providing some assistance in facilities management uh, for the port in Sri Lanka, another one for a port in Sao Tome. The Chinese have, a, on, the, on the West African coast, you know, the Chinese have a lot of experience. They have a huge coastline themselves. They're a big exporting country. They know a lot about maritime facilities, about port facilities, and, and the logistics of all that. It makes sense for, for developing countries, for countries that need some assistance in this area, to look to the Chinese. The Chinese can provide this kind of assistance in ways that are very different from the dictatorial methods that are outlined by the United States through its agencies like the World Bank and the, and the IMF. So, you know, the idea that countries might want to have independent relationships with China that, that in their opinion, are beneficial, are mutually beneficial, uh, you know, we've seen over and over again that that's something that the United States and, and its minions are simply not willing to, to embrace. And this is this is just yet another instance of that. I asked in the open how much of this is the United States projecting. We know that the United States is an imperial hegemon. We know that the United States invades other countries unprovoked simply for its own economic benefit. And I use the word projecting because that's what the United States does. We've had this conversation before. When was the last time China invaded anybody? And this is not, the last time was what, in the 70s or something like that? 79, they had a border dispute with Vietnam. Thank you. So this is, you know, this is not what China does. Right. No, clearly. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at history, if you look at the history of the last couple of hundred years, uh, you know, (laughs) how many countries, how many people have the United States dominated, taken over, uh, evicted from their native lands? How many countries in the world have been invaded by the United States, subordinated to American interests? The list goes on and on and on, and it continues right down to the present day. How many countries has China invaded? How many countries has China taken over? How many countries are, you know, subordinated to China in in the same kinds of ways? That would be a big goose egg. So, you know, yeah, the contrast is, is stark. But this idea of, of American elites, when they look at the world around them, they can only think in the same way that they have thought about how they want to master and dominate the world. They invert that, they project it outwards. And so, of course, as their power begins to fade, as their dominance and hegemony in the world is being eclipsed, you know, all they can do is think that that someone else's gain has to be our loss, rather than trying to think of ways in which, you know, the rise the improvement and the development of other parts of the world uh, might be something that that could be, as as you know, we were just talking about with the Solomon Islands in China, something of mutual benefit, something that both parties, both sides, if we have to think of it that way, could share in. 
Another thing I think as the um, as the an imperial power collapses, the contradictions become more blatant and profound. Here's a, a joint statement. This is from WhiteHouse.gov. Joint statement on the U.S.-Ukraine strategic partnership. This is from September first, twenty twenty one. Let me read this particular passage. In the twenty first century, nations cannot be allowed to redraw borders by force. Russia violated this ground rule in Ukraine. And here's the sentence of, 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 of importance. Sovereign states have the right to make their own decisions and choose their own alliances. This runs in direct contradiction. And what is uh, to what the, their position on, 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 the, uh, on the Solomon's Island? So my thoughts are that the collapse of an empire, that the loss of power of an, an empire kind of smokes it out to the point where they can no longer hide the contradictions between their rhetoric and their actions. Your thoughts? Well, this is, a, this is just such an amazing uh, a document in its own right. Uh, but absolutely, the contrast, I mean, that phrase, you know, sovereign states have the right to make their own decisions and choose their own alliances unless those <laughs> decisions and alliances are different from the ones we want them to make and the ones we want them to have. I mean, it's just so incredibly blatant. And when you dig down into that statement, when you dig down into the, the, to the nuts and bolts of what this, this agreement uh, between, you know, the, the strategic partnership between the United States and Ukraine is, it's so remarkable because it is a litany of steps by which the United States and the international agencies which it dominates, the IMF is mentioned specifically in there, are, are compelling Ukraine to reconfigure its domestic governance, to reconfigure its budgetary practices, to reconfigure its economic activities in ways which will bring it into conformity with that, you know, rules-based, American rules-based international order will bring it into line with, with the global capitalist norms that the United States has developed and projected around the world. So, yeah, you know, we believe in, in sovereignty and non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries, except, A, if they want to have a sovereign relationship with someone else, or B, if we think that we need to rearrange their internal affairs in ways that would be more in conformity with our interests. So, yeah, this is, it's a remarkable document. And, and obviously the fact that some State Department minion can get up and read this kind of stuff with a straight face is, is pretty remarkable. And what's even more remarkable is nobody stood up and said, excuse me, but if you understand the definition of sovereignty, then what you've just written in your document is exactly the opposite of what sovereignty is, because to be sovereign means that you have control over a specified, ex recognized geographic space. And within that space, you have the right to do what you deem necessary, even up to the point of using force in order to oversee it, and that that is recognized by those outside of that geographic space. That's the definition of sovereignty. It is indeed. It is indeed. And this question of this question of of you know interference in internal affairs, you know, the, the, those things go hand in hand. If if you're going to tout the the doctrines of sovereignty, a you have to be consistent and apply that across the board. Not Correct. pick and choose the countries that you see as being sovereign, and b then you actually have to respect that uh, with regards to, to how a country and a people are going to govern themselves. And uh, 
Because what really makes sovereignty sovereignty is the respect of that space by those outside of it, not those inside of it. Exactly. Exactly. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, sir. And the United States is, has a real problem doing that. Uh, Dr. Ken Hammond, <laughs> as always, man, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that, and we look forward to having you back. Well, a really, a really fun discussion today. This was a couple of, uh, I mean, the contrast between these situations is so remarkable, and it was just, uh, just really good to have a chance to explore that. Thank you, Ken. Really appreciate it. Enjoy your day. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Xinhua reports China prioritizes job creation to unleash full growth potential against headwinds. China is actively incorporating its longstanding employment-first approach into its pro-growth measures to help cushion the economy against potential impacts from heightened uncertainties. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to be back. So this article really indicates to me how forward-thinking China is and has been, because if the United States had incorporated a long-standing employment-first approach instead of deindustrialization of the United States and traversing the world as an imperial hegemon looking for the cheapest labor humanly possible, the United States economy would be in a much better position. The impact of the supply chain problem would not be as big of an issue, and we probably wouldn't be in as many military confrontations as the United States finds itself in. George Koo. I guess in a way, China has a different set of challenges to the United States. They have so many more people, Mm -hmm. and um, they are, you know, creating jobs has always been a pressing issue for the government because you just can't simply can't afford to have a lot of unemployment people lying around creating, you know, with nothing to do because that's going to be sooner or later a source of tremendous arrest. But you, you, on the other hand, you have to give China credit. Even back when Zhu Rongji was the premier in charge of the economy, they were willing to bite the bullet and shut down the inefficient state-owned enterprises, the so-called Rust Belt companies, but they also created um, opportunities and um, they also created cities, urbanized, and urbanization creates jobs. They also um, saw the opportunity of what the modern economy looks like. They didn't think about, oh, let's not have internet Let's not have robotics. Let's not have artificial intelligence. Let's not have mobile uh, mobile payment, mobile phone. Because 
instead of looking at it and saying, well, that's all going to take jobs away, they look at it the other way around. All those modern technology creates different jobs, create high-paying jobs, create employment. And that's been the strategy that they had been all along. You know, I think another thing that's interesting here, particularly living in the United States right now, and that is that one of the things I've said recently is the government has is, is totally detached, is totally decoupled from its constituency. Right now, it's obvious the Biden administration and their war hawks are completely focused on foreign policy, a reckless foreign yep. policy, but they could care less if every American starves to death. In fact, that seems to be the plan, one could argue. But it's the difference between... <laughs> Between a, a leadership who says we have to be concerned about the day-to-day lives of the people of this country and we have to do things to mitigate their suffering as to a government that says, oh, man, it sure is an inconvenience. These people want bread and water and a chicken in every pot and things of that nature. Your thoughts? Well, in fact, th- th- uh, before you respond, George Garland, that was that was really my point in, in looking at a government that, that makes a conscious policy decision we're going to pull hundreds of millions of people out of poverty instead of looking at a country that has incredible levels of poverty at the same time, incredible levels of resources and individual wealth and says, we don't care if people live under bridges. We don't give a damn about that. It's all about the bottom line and it's all about investor relations. Yeah, unfortunately, Everything you say is true, and 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 yet we go around parading and say, "Look at us as a model of democracy." Well, this model of democracy does not mean a chicken in every pot, you know, not even a loaf of bread on every table, because we have what is known as "quote unquote" special interests, and the special interests runs this country. They run Washington. They are interested in making more arms, selling more arms, doing R&D for more advanced weapons. That's their uh, a priority. And uh, the other special interest is interested in selling more oil and more gas. And um, when the price of oil and gas goes up worldwide, that's good for them. So that's another special interest. I don't know where the, the 90% of the rest of us you know, I don't think there's any anybody representing our interests, and that's the tragedy of it all. I certainly agree with you on that. Here, there's another article um, in Asia Times: China, Russia blast super weapon warnings at U.S. Successive hypersonic and ICBM tests send a message to the U.S. and its allies in a new era of war and nuclear threats. What I find interesting, they discuss it, but. You know, when it sends a message, but the question is, what is the message? And to me, here's the message. We don't want any trouble. Back off. Leave us alone. You're aggressive. We don't want war. We have the ability to defend ourselves, kind of like when you look at, you know, in, in, in nature, an animal puffs up and makes itself look bigger, not because it wants conflict, but because it wants to send a message to a potential adversary or predator in this instance, probably the latter, predator, um, that I don't want conflict. Your thoughts? I'm worried whether that strategy is going to work, Is whether it's going to scare the West, the United States, NATO, and so on, because that was pretty much the strategy that Putin had. Um, he kept threatening and said, look, if you don't back off, 
we're, we're going to go to war, we're going to go to war. And nobody took him seriously until he actually did go to war. Uh, and, um, you know, he, he was provoked beyond any reasonable limit before he finally invaded Ukraine. So what is it going to take? Is it going to take a hypersonic uh, test that hits someplace close to home before we all sit up and listen? Or will we just cheer and, and, and the, the Raytheons of this world will say, hooray, now we got to go and, defend and create another umbrella to defend against the advanced weapons that China and Russia has? Um, it's it's not looking very optimistic from from my point of view, gentlemen. I, I would agree with you, and I think the answer to your question would be the latter, not the former. Uh, there's a there's a piece in Asia Times. Russia becomes an Asian nation. Sanctions may be empowering Russia to create the pathways for financial and economic independence from the West. And it reads: Russia, according to a recent caustic headline in Bloomberg is facing yeah. reverse industrialization due to the U.S.-led sanctions regime. In the long term, however, the sanctions have merely hardened Russia's resistance to the West and intransigence on the Ukraine issue. More important, Putin, the regime, appears unwilling to abandon its present course of action in Ukraine, no matter how tightly Washington and Brussels squeeze Moscow economically. I think the Bloomberg headline was was just ridiculous. But, I mean, this is really kind of uh, writing about the obvious that the United States actions have and sanctions have forced a number of countries into relationships that they otherwise might not have gone into or at least would have taken a lot more time for them to get into, and the United States is going to find itself holding the bag. Yeah. Well, you know, I— um I, I haven't read that piece about Russia deindustrialization. I wonder if if it's comparable to the deindustrialization that's taking place in America, even though now we're trying to quote unquote reindustrialize. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you can do with a band-aid approach, and and it takes a, a lot more investment, uh, dedicated investment over a long time period. But what's I think what's keeping Russia resilient and resistant is because of all the natural resources it owns. And natural resources, that's real. It's not paper money. It's not something that uh, comes and goes, you know. So far as we know, the, 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 the world still needs energy in the form of liquid uh, in, in the form of natural gas, in the form of oil, in the form of coal, and Russia has plenty of that. Russia is also an important agricultural country and produces a vast amount of wheat and other pro uh, pro produce. And those things are real assets because people got to eat. And the world needs and, uh, and the world needs aluminum. <laughs> aluminum, yeah, exactly. So. So, you know, where, um, China, I mean, uh, Russia doesn't have China's rare earth, but that's the only, that's probably the, the other thing that the, uh, the China has. In any case, we have already shown to the world that the U.S. cannot be trusted as a reliable, honest fiduciary. We'll take your deposits in dollars and dollars and overnight 
we can renege and we can confiscate and we can say we own it now and you don't own it. And certainly that happened to Iran. It happened to Afghanistan. It's happening to Russia. Pretty soon people are going to come around. Yeah, and people are going to come around and say, hey, wait a minute. Why are we putting in the full faith and credit of the United States? It's not worth worth anything. And that's where the real trouble is coming, and I'm not sure the Biden administration has a clue. Yeah, I think uh, this is going to be sound weird. I think, you know, for the concern and caution about the West doing something um, irrational, which is pretty much normal, I think the, the, the longer things go, the problem that the, that's going to, that the West is going to have is going to be, and this is the problem that, that uh, ultimately brings down empires, and that is internal uprisings, that if Time starts to wear on, like into the fall and into next winter. Um, The prices, the inflation, the um, pain that's going to be suffered, particularly in Europe, are going to throw a monkey wrench in plans for external actions. Your thoughts? The unrest, I I guess it will happen to different, depending on the degrees of pain and depends on the government control. I, I really am not on top of how France and Germany are going to uh, take it because already they're finding different ways to leak around the sanctions so that their people are going to not suffer as much. The bigger question is how will the United States take it? And we apparently we still don't quite feel the pain Yet it's not really coming home to the extent that I think we will have a rebellion in our hand, in, in our country. And I'm not a, a good enough prognosticator to say this is happen. This is going to happen this year from the midterm, or will be happening at the next presidential election. Um, what makes me so pessimistic, gentlemen, is you know I'm disappointed with every potential candidate that could be the president of the United States. I don't see anybody with the stature and integrity, statesmanship, and honesty to go to the American people and say, folks, we are in trouble. Mm -hmm. We need to find a different way. We need to get rid of this system that we're in. We have to get rid of the military industrial complex and all the other special interests that's depriving us of our livelihood. Well said, George Koo. As always, we greatly appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
Pro-Palestine protesters in London call for tough response to UK, to Israel's Al-Asqa raids. Hundreds of pro-Palestine supporters took to the streets of London this past Friday to protest Israeli actions in occupied East Jerusalem, including its recent raids on the Al-Asqa Mosque. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So this protest comes after the repeated Israeli and settler raids at Al-Asqa, the third holiest site in Islam, which has seen over 200 Palestinians wounded. Worshippers were attacked using tear gas and struck with batons inside the compound during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. Hundreds of pro-Palestine protesters in London held an emergency protest outside the Israeli embassy this past Friday following raids on the mosque in occupied East Jerusalem. Laith, this was, from what I can tell, a small rally, but there were a number of organizations involved. And this wasn't mentioned in Western media, but your thoughts on the significance of the protest? It's very significant because uh, it's also in the lead up to the uh, Jerusalem Day um, Al-Quds Day that uh, is usually commemorated on the last Friday of the holy month of Ramadan. It's coming up next Friday. Uh, it's an annual demonstration, global demonstration that was called originally by uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini during his life. And uh, we know that much of the Zionist lobby in Europe and uh, North America have been, you know, pushing their governments to ban uh, Al-Quds Day. So if this demonstration happened right now in London, it will be uh, basically a um, preview of what we should expect next Friday. And if the Zionists uh, are not able to stop the demonstrations uh, and as the situation continues to deteriorate in on the ground in Palestine. There will be a lot of pressure on the Zionist lobby in the public space, even if they black out the information in the mass media. What's the current situation that you know of actually on the ground with, you know, what's happened with the raids, with the uh, retaliation, et cetera? You know, earlier today there was a um, joint conference held uh, in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Ramallah, uh, hooking up uh, much of the Palestinian um, factions, uh, religious leaders, Christian and Muslim and and secular um, civil liberty organizations, all mobilizing for, uh, you know, an actual intifada, an uprising that will fill the the gap of uh, the useless leadership in the Palestinian Authority and the PLO. Right now, there was it was surprising because there was uh, many Fatah members that were in this uh, meeting that was televised and uh, um, organized in these spaces. So we can expect as the pressure mounts um, in Jerusalem in the next few days and weeks, 
um, and the Zionists continue to met uh, their oppression on the Palestinian people. Uh, for instance, today uh, and yesterday, sorry, was the Easter for the Orthodox Christians, uh, you know, which is a huge part of the Palestinian Christian population. And they were beaten in the streets as they were, uh, you know, walking to the uh, churches for in uh, old Jerusalem. They were uh, segregated uh, and foreign Orthodox Christians were allowed into the church while the Palestinian Christian Orthodox were not. And uh, there was huge scuffles that uh, actually carried into the church uh, in Jerusalem. And so we can see that the Christian population is also, and their holy sites in Jerusalem are uh, meted the same treatment as their Muslim uh, brothers uh, in Jerusalem. Additional story um, that I that I find important and maybe related is that the in- Israeli army is now um, they have said that there was projectiles fired from Lebanon and um, they have responded with um, artillery. There seems to be some level of military action going on. There's always fear that that could get out of hand. Um, your thoughts on on uh, the latest that we know about that? This is amazing. We talked about uh, the possibility of the Zionists attempting to um, affect the elections in Lebanon because, you know, the Americans, the French, the Saudis, the Zionists, they know that their tools in Lebanon are about to lose uh, even more seats in the uh, parliament for the elections that are coming in the next two weeks. And um, that means that there is a higher and higher chance that the uh, imperialist camp will attempt to derail these elections in any way possible. So yesterday, uh, there was supposedly a um, missile that was fired from South Lebanon into open fields in north-occupied Palestine, and uh, the Zionists responded by uh, firing over 45 uh, tank uh, shells from their positions uh, in the north, and this is in the area that is um, very, basically the uh, furthest point of water between Palestine and Lebanon on the mid- to the Mediterranean. So it's from the Ras al-Nakura point, which is the Mediterranean uh, border point between C- uh, Lebanon and um, uh, Palestine. And uh, so we can see that it is not in the interest of Hezbollah, for instance, as a resistance movement to who knows that they are going to win uh, more seats than they ever had before to trigger right now a confrontation with the Zionists, although they are ready for it. Um, but And it's clear right now that somebody must have uh, done this action to destabilize the south of Lebanon as the elections uh, are coming to uh, their date in the next two weeks. I'm glad you said that because that kind of validates some of my thinking as I read these stories. There were two things that jumped out at me. One was the uh, Lebanon's National News Agency said the rocket fire was carried out by unidentified groups. So when I hear unidentified groups in that region, I usually think either U.S.-backed 
or supporting U.S. interest. And the other thing that I found very interesting was the description of where the rockets landed. They didn't hit anything, and they didn't they didn't really land near anything. So uh, that to me, I, I just wondered either either you have no understanding of how to coordinate the trajectory of your rockets. Or your, uh, your, you know, your missile technology isn't that good. Or, yeah, this was probably a provocation that had less to do with Lebanon and more to do, again, with the United States and the interests of its puppets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Hezbollah has been very um, calculated in its actions. We know, of course, that its uh, weaponry are much more developed and if it wants to... Um, we retaliate for the killing of some of its uh, members in Syria last year, which they are still owed and said that they will be retaliating for that. They will actually hit their target and it wouldn't be some uh, Ketusha missile that is uh, undirected hitting an empty field. So uh, clearly Hezbollah has been holding their um, patience until the elections are done, until uh, a more clear position happens from Iran and Syria about retaliating for their killed uh, members uh, that were, you know, martyred in attacks by the Zionists. So all of these things clearly indicate that uh, this event was uh, manufactured in order to destabilize the peace in Lebanon as the elections uh, unfold. There's an antiwar.com article, Yemen seen as only a minor issue in the U.S.-Saudi split. And they talk about um, Jake Sullivan showing up uh, and meeting with the um, meeting with the Saudis, not going so well. Your thoughts on the issues now between the U.S. empire and, uh, and the Saudi uh, leaders? Well, as the United States is uh, attempting to cut off uh, Russian fossil fuels, oil and gas specifically from uh, Western markets, it has no choice but to, you know, its components of its empire, even that the ones that it would like to uh, rein in, like the Saudis, for uh, their actions. But because of their oil and their gas uh, passing through their territory, even from Qatar, it will mean that uh, they will not be forcing the Saudis to do anything that they don't like. Um, now, this is because well, the Americans, with their installation of uh, uh, MBS, um, you know, that and, and what he did in terms of um, punishing any opposition in the Saudi monarchy. Uh, and stripping much of the uh, oligarchies of the Saudi finance sectors and media to off their holdings and their finances. Right now, the, the all the power is concentrated in the hands of one person in Saudi Arabia. And even if the Americans would like to um, maybe organize a coup, it will be a very difficult situation because there's not much left in the country in terms of internal opposition, even in the Saud family. Um, so we see that playing out in Yemen. But what's important in terms of Yemen is what's happening on the ground. So it doesn't matter what the Americans and what the Saudis wish. 
the Yemeni uh, resistance is uh, achieving huge uh, victories against uh, this war machine um, and uh, a, a return to hostilities that is expected in the next few weeks as the ceasefire ends in Yemen will only lead to more destruction of uh, Saudi infrastructure um, that is supposed to save the empire right now in its need uh, of oil and gas uh, in Russia. So, so b- because of the war in Russia. So we see um, that whatever the United States is playing with the Saudi royals right now in the terms of Yemen is actually going to only hurt their efforts in Ukraine. There's a paragraph in this story that, I, to me, speaks volumes. It says, there are disagreements on Yemen with Biden talking up its extracting the U.S. from the war. The Saudis are at least somewhat interested in getting out of the war, but the U.S. officials openly say they envision a post-war Yemen to remain heavily influenced by the Saudis. That's a lot of verbiage that isn't saying a whole lot, but Biden talking up extracting the U.S. Well, he told us during the campaign that we were going to get out. We were supposed to be out by now. And extracting the U.S. from this isn't anything like getting us out of out of Afghanistan. Then about the Saudis interested in getting out, we know they want to get out. And this, to me, would be a perfect opportunity for them to get out with and at least being able to create a vision of honor. And I put that in quotes. Uh, and this whole thing about a post-war Yemen influenced by the Saudis, I don't see how that happens, Leith Maroof. Yeah, I mean, look, the uh, the American empire put itself in in a situation between a, a rock and a hard place. It wants to withdraw from Western Asia in order to concentrate on a war uh, against Russia, while it actually hasn't defeated its enemies in West Asia, the uh, axis of resistance. Um, and it needs to replace the uh, oil and gas shortages coming because of the Russian sanctions uh, to by increasing the flow from Western Asia, and which means that a, a withdrawal and a, and a need to increase the um, the flow from Western Asia means that the flows are going to be even more vulnerable to the dictates of the axis of resistance. And so uh, this dual situation means that uh, the United States has no choice either to give up Western Asia to the influence of the axis of resistance, hoping that there will be a continuation of flows of uh, fossil fuels Mm -hmm. and or go to war and uh, then cut itself at the, shoot itself in the leg. It's a, it's a lose, lose situation for the United States. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Azov Battalion, the far-right defenders of Mariupol, making Putin's words ring true while pro-Ukraine rally attendees cheer for a Nazi Azov Battalion in New York City. What are we to make of all of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst, traveled extensively in the Middle East and Latin America. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So let's start with the attendees of a pro-Ukrainian rally in Manhattan broke out into chance of supporting support for the neo-Nazi paramilitary faction known as Azov Battalion. There's video to uh, circulating about this where they are waving Ukrainian flags and chanting Azov, Azov, Azov in lower Manhattan. Caleb Moffin. Yeah, well, you know, the talking point of the uh, people who are defending U.S. support for the Ukrainian government uh, and criticizing Russia's denazification operation has been that the Azov Battalion, oh, they're just an obscure, irrelevant grouping. Uh, You know, it has nothing to do with the conflict. This is just Russian propaganda to support their intervention. So when you have a crowd of Ukrainian sympathizers in New York City, mind you, not in Ukraine, but in New York City, chanting the name of the Nazi division of the Ukrainian military very loudly, uh, that makes it very clear uh, that uh, that this is part of the Ukrainian military and this is supported by the Ukrainian allies of the United States. Um, and it really flies in the face of the narrative that we're getting. The Azov battalion is so important uh, to the Ukrainian military that when the president uh, of Ukraine, Zelensky, went to Greece to address their parliament. He actually brought a member of the Azov Battalion with him to address the parliament, uh, causing outrage even among some of Russia's harshest critics in Greece because of the history of the Nazi crimes in Greece. That was quite an offensive move to do. Um, you saw that interview, uh, you know, Fox News. They asked, uh, they asked him. Uh, the, the host asked uh, President Zelensky about the Azov Battalion, and he said, "Yes, they exist." And and you know, the USA can't ignore this. You can't downplay this. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. And and they're continuing to scramble around and try and, and dance around these facts. But the facts speak for themselves. There is an openly Nazi division that has been, you know, included and integrated and made an official part of the Ukrainian military. The United States is arming the Ukrainian military and that division. Um, and they are an increasing part of the fighting. And on top of that, they are doing the kind of things Nazis do. Uh, they are attacking people on the basis of their ethnicity. They're going after Roma people. Uh, they're going after different people. They are taking uh, civilians as human shields. Uh, they are committing war crimes, which is, I mean, shouldn't be surprising for those of us familiar with the history of the Second World War. Um, and uh, at this point, uh, you know, it's really hard for the United States to deny it. I guess mainstream media just wants to ignore these facts. Uh, Biden wants to just not acknowledge these facts, but they exist and they are right in front of the face of anyone who cares to see them. Um, There was a, you know, uh, 1939, um, and a lot of Americans don't know, there was a rally in Madison Square Garden. It was a pro-Hitler, pro-Nazi rally. Um, There were rallies in New Jersey. Um, There was an equivalent of a brown shirt, Nazi youth. I mean, there was uh, some fascism going on and some pro-Hitler stuff going on in the United States and particularly, you know, a lot around New York and New Jersey. I say that because the video, I watched it over the weekend of this pro-Ukrainian rally where attendees were cheering, Azov, Azov, 
AIDS off. And I mean, it sounded like Adolf, Adolf, Adolf to me, if you really want the truth. But so we now we're at a place where we're back to 1939 and we've got people in America literally cheering for Nazis in New York. Your thoughts on that, Caleb? Sure. Well, that infamous rally in 1939 held in Madison Square Garden where they had, uh, you know, George Washington's picture up next to the the swastika. That was, uh, you know, a big moment. And there was a huge amount of protesting and opposition to it. Uh, There there was somebody, there's video footage of somebody trying to run onto the stage to confront them. And that was an ethnic organization. That was the German-American Bund. That was a group of ethnic Germans uh, who were sympathetic to Hitler. Um, But they were far from the only pro-Hitler grouping. Uh, There was a guy named William Dudley Pillay. Uh, who had a group called the Silver Legion of America. It was some kind of weird occultist spiritualist group uh, that they were supporting Hitler. Um, you know, there was um, there were you know there was the Black Legion, uh, which was a kind of a breakaway from the Ku Klux Klan that allowed uh, Roman Catholics to join. Uh, and they wore black hoods instead of white hoods. They murdered the father of Malcolm X, uh, and uh, you know they operated in Michigan, and they were known to be very sympathetic to Hitler. And, and make Hitler statements. Um, and I think Humphrey Bogart even made a, uh, a fictionalized movie about them, uh, you know, describing how they, they were also kind of a pyramid scheme, ripping off their members in addition to committing hate crimes and targeting people on the basis of their ethnicity and religion and, and background. So, yes, there was a lot of sympathy for the Nazis, and there was an attempted Nazi coup against Roosevelt in 1934. Uh, General Smedley Butler of the U.S. Marine Corps testified before Congress that he had been approached by members of the business community, including Henry Morgan and Henry Ford and others, about uh, leading the American Legion to carry out a military coup and topple Roosevelt and put a government that would be sympathetic to the Nazis uh, in power in Washington, D.C. And among the National Association of Manufacturers, which was the factory owners, uh, you know, there was a feeling that the union movement was so out of control and so communist-led that in order to preserve the, the right of private property and capitalism, some kind of fascist government needed to be installed. Roosevelt disagreed with that, and he and the Rockefellers, uh, they argued uh, that, uh, that it was necessary to have a labor movement, uh, and they, you know, are, are largely because of their own financial interests, uh, they, they felt like, you know, the rise of Germany and the, and the rise of, of fascist Italy and Japan was kind of a threat to the oil dominate, domination of the oil markets by American and British corporations. So there was kind of a, a differing financial interest with the National Association of Manufacturers being sympathetic to fascism with the Rockefellers and Roosevelt and, and some of their folks being sympathetic to, to Britain and, and anti-fascism and being more willing to work with the Soviet Union. But yes, there was a lot of pro-Hitler sentiment in the United States back in the 1930s, and there seems to be right up to today. And it should be noted that this was an uh, a, a not widely acknowledged but but ever present attribute of U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War. All over all over the world, former Nazis uh, were teaming up with the United States to fight the communists, and that that happened in Europe. Uh, the Greek Civil War is a great example of that. Uh, that happened uh, during the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. A lot of these, you know, anti-communist nationalist elements that were being supported by the United States were sympathetic to Hitler. Uh, that happened. Uh, that happened in Asia with, you know, former Japanese collaborators working with the United States against China. So, you know, we shouldn't really be surprised. But there it is, right in front of your face in this video. As of, as of, as of, right in front of your face. The Business Standard uh, has a piece 
Azov Battalion, the far-right defenders of Mariupol, making Putin's words ring true. And they write, the success of their recruitment efforts, Azov, is not just confined to Ukraine. They have volunteers from all over the world, including the United States, Canada, Scandinavia, and others. Facebook came to play a major role in their recruitment. Algorithms tended to sway sympathetic users to these extremist hubs where it it was easy to become radicalized. So two things. One, it was reported early on that a number of fascists, a number of skinheads, a number of all kinds of uh, nuts were going to Ukraine and either and getting training. So the concern that they come back more radicalized is one thing. And Facebook algorithms swaying sympathetic users to these hubs. Um, sure. And again, you know, Facebook had a ban on any Nazi-related groups, but they created a special exception for the Azov Battalion and for Ukrainian fascist sympathizers. Facebook has said this is the one kind of white supremacist Nazi ideology that, that will allow. Um, and that's pretty shocking. Um, and they also made, you know, an exception for threats against the Russian president. You know, you're generally not allowed to call for the call for violence against heads of state on Facebook, but they made an exception or the Russian president. And that shows you how blatant and how partisan and how clearly a wing of U.S. intelligence and the U.S. State Department, the social media outlets really are. Um, and we've seen many, many examples of this. I mean, this crisis is really kind of ripping the window shades out and allowing us to really just kind of peer in and see, you know, the role that so many of these institutions really play. Um, you know, the social media outlets, uh, you know, various liberal voices who, who claim to speak in the name of socialism, but are huge supporters of the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. Uh, you know, uh, many, many forces are making clear what side they're on. And this crisis has certainly done that. And a lot of the charades and shades of gray and confusion uh, that existed before this crisis uh, are certainly no longer in play. And we can kind of see where everyone stands. Venezuela hosted a fourth summit against fascism. And they say the, the fourth summit against fascism was held in Caracas during uh, April 11th, 12th, and 13th. And they had apparently 200 international guests from 58 countries. They discussed such things as um, the adapt adaptability of fascism in the new times. Your thoughts? Well, it's interesting because in the 90s, uh, you know, Cuba was really kind of in the forefront of pushing the conversation about neoliberalism. Cuba sponsored conferences about neoliberalism. Fidel Castro, uh, you know, wrote a, a book in the 90s about neoliberalism and arguing that neoliberalism and fascism was the direction that American capitalism was leading the world. And, uh, you know, that played a role. The Bolivarian movement is largely rooted in the struggle against neoliberalism. And it, it was conferences in Cuba in which academics from all over the world went to Cuba and presented their papers, some of them not communist, some of them not even sympathetic to the Cuban government. But Cuba kind of laid the groundwork for research about neoliberalism, opposing neoliberalism, arguing that neoliberalism would lead to fascism. Um, and reorienting the communists and leftist activists of Latin America to work in popular fronts, uh, you know, against neoliberalism. And that kind of laid the basis for the, uh, for the, for the you know, development of Bolivarian socialism. So a lot of these developments, uh, you know, you can, you can attribute to Cuba, and that sounds like these conferences in Venezuela orienting people against austerity, fascism, and neoliberalism, uh, are part of continuing that great tradition, which was definitely a huge contribution that ultimately led to a very big game changer for the whole region. So what type of momentum do you, or traction do you think this conversation 
uh, will get as Venezuela has established uh, relationships with other countries, all of them in response to sanctions by the U.S., imperialism by the United States. Do you think that these relationships will help to generate greater traction uh, with these types of anti-fascist conversations. Well, it, it will show that there's a, there needs to be a, a real understanding scientifically of what fascism really is. You know, the best work of writing I've ever read on fascism was written by a leader of the British Communist Party in 1934. Uh, he was of Indian descent. Uh, his name was R. Palm Dutt, and he wrote a very good book called Fascism and Social Revolution laying out that when there is an economic crisis, when you know the rate of profit is dropping and the capitalists are fighting among each other trying to resolve the crisis, fascism emerges as a kind of authoritarian state uh, intended to stabilize capitalism and drive living standards down in order to resolve the crisis. Um, and that there's no fascist ideology, you know, that, that what the fascists teach generally is not that different than what, you know, say, like t- typical nationalist or conservative or, or right-wing anti-communist voices teach. There's no unique ideology. There's no, uh, there's no unique, you know, perspective or aesthetic. It's rooted in a mobilization of society to beat down and drive down living standards and have a more stable and authoritarian capitalism amid an economic crisis. Um, And that's what fascism is. And ultimately, fascism leads to war. Uh, That is where fascism inevitably leads. A fascist state is not going to be able to stay in power for very long without, you know, fomenting a war. Uh, So that's ultimately where fascism leads. And our Palm Dutt does a great job of showing that. And that's the scientific definition that people like the Venezuelans hold on to. This definition that we've gotten from the liberals where fascism is all Trump supporters or fascism is, you know, uh, certain types of uniforms or costumes or fascism is art, a type of artwork or something like that is a confused definition uh, that, that is not rooted in science and materialism. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a very interesting piece in RT entitled, Why Russia's Intervention in Ukraine is Legal Under International Law. The argument can be made that Russia exercised its right for self-defense. What do we make of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He teaches international human rights at the University. University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He's the author of the recently released No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. And he's the author of this piece, Professor Dan Kovalik. As always, Dan, welcome back. Thank you very much. You write, as the justices at Nuremberg correctly concluded, to initiate a war of aggression is not only an international crime, it's the supreme international crime differing only from other war crimes in that it contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. How 
when, particularly when you put this in the context of Nuremberg, and as we try to navigate this Western media echo chamber of Russia evil, it invaded Ukraine, how do we get to the point that the intervention first was in, was an intervention, not an invasion, and how does it not violate international law? Well, I mean, we first have to start with the premise, as I say, you know, war is the greatest scourge on humanity. And, you know, again, the original U.N. members recognize that the Nuremberg justices recognized it. And so, you know, when I write a piece and arguing that the country had a right to go to war, I do so very reluctantly. But, you know, the first thing we have to keep in mind is that there was a war already going on. The Russians didn't start this war. This war started in 2014, and it was a war between the government and military in Kiev and their own ethnic Russians in the Donbass region of Ukraine in which 14,000 people were killed, hundreds of thousands of people displaced. And so the scourge of war was started way before February of this year. So that's for one. And this is a war that was on Russia's borders and impacted Russia in a very profound way. First of all, five at least 500,000 Ukrainian citizens in the Donbass are also Russian citizens, half a million. Um, so again, that increases Russia's interest in their well-being. And of course, hundreds of thousands of these Ukrainians in the Donbass, because of the war that had already existed, were fleeing into Russia, right, as immigrants. So that was another impact on Russia. And what Russia saw happening coming into 2022 were a few things. One, you had President Zelensky of Ukraine openly threatening to take back Crimea from Russia by force. Okay, Crimea is now part of Russia. Now, the international community doesn't recognize that fact, but it is a fact, uh, you know, a completed fact, a fait accompli, as we say. So the idea of Ukraine actually invading Russian territory, what they consider Russian territory, and which, by the way, the Crimeans consider Russian territory. I quote Time Mag. I think I quoted it was. I think it was Time Magazine or a mainstream magazine that recently said that you know the Crimeans polled are overwhelmingly happy to be part of Russia. Don't want to go back to Ukraine. So here's Zelensky saying, "We don't care. We're going to take this back from Russia." Well, that's that's a threat of war. The other thing that the Russians saw. Uh, in which was confirmed, by the way, by other intelligence uh, agencies, including from France. There was another one, too, I'm forgetting, but certainly France, was that Zelensky may have been preparing also uh, for a major invasion into the Donbass region. And these things obviously uh, were a threat to to Russia itself. I mean, and they knew that and everyone knows it. I mean, that's the other point. Like Russia's whole point about this war is that they've been under an existential threat. 
And the truth is the U.S. has been very clear. You are under an existential threat. We're making it, right? The other thing I note in there is that for some time the CIA has been in Ukraine training neo-Nazis to kill Russians. That's that's the a direct quote. Um, you know, how much does a country have to put up with in terms of real threats, existential threats to its territory before it acts in self-defense? And my argument is that I think there was a critical point reached where Russia's self-defense right was triggered and they acted upon it, whether we like it or we don't. It's, it's It's just a fact. There's a couple of more arguments. I think General Douglas McGregor writes a very great, a good article in um, it's 1945.com, The Endless War in Ukraine. Have you, have you had a chance to take a look at that article and give us your thoughts on it? Yeah, well, he also talks about the fact that, you know, Ukraine has been this petri dish for years of Nazism, right? I mean, really going back to the 1920s and the the U.S. has used that, the Nazi elements in Ukraine, as a way to try to destabilize at first the Soviet Union and then Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And again, this reached, I think, a boiling point in beginning in 2014 when these Nazi elements actually and declared war against the ethnic Russians in the Donbass and began – Attacking them. And so McGregor and I agree again that this was a profound development, again, that's been happening over time that the U.S. has openly cultivated uh, as a means of trying to undermine the stability of Russia. Right. Uh, By the way, I also cite the Rand Corporation, which a few years actually talked about using Ukraine to destabilize Russia. So again, it's not even a secret that that's the goal. And the U.S. would never put up with such a thing, right? If you – in Mexico, if you had the same thing happening, if you had Russia for years supporting extremist elements of some sort whose goal was to attack the United States – and undermine the stability of the United States, the U.S. would have acted, and it would have acted a long time ago. I mean, the truth is, you know, Russia's really, you know, really sat back on its heels for some time watching all this happen, begging for the international community to do something about it, and nothing was ever done. Agreements that were reached, like the Minsk Agreement, which were supposed to, deal with this situation were never complied with, right? And so in the end, Russia decided to act alone. And again, that's an extreme thing. I mean, the the UN charter frowns upon countries acting unilaterally like that, right? You're supposed to get Security Council authorization, but the truth is that was never going to come. And Russia knew that. And again, the way the UN Charter is written in Article 51, the only mention of self-defense is that nothing in the charter should be read to take away a country's customary right to self-defense. That is to say the UN Charter is not a suicide pact, right? 
they, it is not <clears> – it is there to prevent war and especially unilateral war. But in the end, a country has a right to defend itself, and that's where I think McGregor and I agree. There are – particularly early on in this, a lot of discussion about former U.S. Secretary of State James Baker in his negotiations, I think, with, with Gorbachev. Gorbachev. Mm-hmm. Saying that um, if you if Russia agrees to the reunification of Germany – then the United States agrees that NATO will not move any further eastward towards towards Russia. And folks have said, oh, well, was there a treaty? Was that signed? Were there emails? Anything? And the answer to that, of course, was no, that that was a promise made by Secretary of State James Baker and uh, on behalf of the United States. And so there are those who say, well, because it's only stated and not written that it's not a, a formally recognized agreement. But what they don't talk about is the Eastern Greenland case of 1931. I think it's called Norway v. Denmark, where the conclusion was in the context of international law, when an accepted representative of a nation makes a commitment on behalf of that nation to another nation, that those agreements are binding. Uh, can you speak to that quickly? Am I right in that assessment? Does that apply to this? And uh, Dan Kovalik. Yes, and especially when a country like in this case the Soviet Union acted to its own detriment on reliance on that promise, right? Then in contracts we call qu- that detrimental reliance. That's right. This, there was a quid pro quo. You allow you allow Germany to reunite your greatest fear in the world, given what happened in World War II, where 27 million Soviets were killed by the Nazis. Um, and also you effectively give up the East Bloc at that point, um, which is a huge ask. In return, we won't move NATO any further east than Germany. OK, well, this Gorbachev lived up to the part, his part of the bargain. He did allow Germany to reunite. He allowed the Berlin Wall to come down. He allowed the Eastern Bloc to go its own way, right? And ultimately, in the end, the Soviet Union itself went away, and it was part of that entire process. Um, so the Soviet Union lived up to its commitment. And given that, the U.S. and NATO were therefore compelled to live up to their uh, promise. It would be like if you and I agreed I was going to buy your car for $10,000 and I gave you the $10,000. We don't have a contract. We didn't write it down, but we agreed. And I gave you have my $10,000 and you don't give me the car. Well, that's exactly what happened here. Um, the U.S. totally reneged on that that promise. Uh, lastly, there's an ar- interesting article in the in the Independent where General Sir Richard Barons was uh, talking to Parliament, I believe it was, and he basically said that the UK, that NATO does not have the military wherewithal really to fight Russia right now. And I, the reason I find it interesting is because I've been watching Scott Ritter online for the last several weeks, and it's exactly what he's been saying, but I find it interesting that at the time they're arguing that the that you the Ukrainian army is wiping out the you know like one Ukrainian uh, soldier is taking out columns of of Russian tanks by himself, and at the same time, then they say, however, all of NATO couldn't defeat Russia. I find contradictions in what they're saying. Your thoughts, Dan? 
Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, everything we've been told by the West about this war has been untrue, you know. And yes, they were crowing that somehow Ukraine had a chance at defeating Russia, and even at one point that they were defeating Russia. And it's just completely absurd. And we keep dumping weapons into there. Billions and billions of dollars in weapons. Again, money's going out the door that could be used on our own infrastructure, on our own health care. It's just going out the door. Those weapons are being destroyed as fast as they get in there, which again is ha- you know, makes the defense companies happy because they're making big profits. But in the end, the Ukrainians are not going to win. And in fact, the more weapons we send, the longer the war will go on. The result will be the same. Russia will win. More Ukrainians will die. We will be out of uh, more resources. Uh, but again, the defense industry coffers will be filled. And so uh, to some extent, that goal will be fulfilled. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Responsible Statecraft has a piece entitled, Rejoining the Iran Deal Would Be a Victory for Dems to Tout in Midterms. Biden should override the holdout hawks in his own party and clinch this one for the team. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq, Nicholas Davies. As always, sir, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, as always. Um, yeah, we'll go ahead. <laughs> so the, the piece opens the resolution of the one-year-long saga of restoring the Iran nuclear deal known as JCPOA now hinges on the avatars of U.S. domestic politics. The ruling Democrats have a key incentive to clinch the deal. It's not only about securing the narrow goal of preventing a nuclear-armed Iran. It's also about enhancing their foreign policy credibility. I like the fact that in this piece, they talk about the substantive benefits of this deal as opposed to simply the politics of this deal. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this was <laughs> this this was really one of the you know small number of real foreign policy successes of the uh, of the Obama administration, mm-hmm. and um, and in fact, uh, Bernie Sanders said that if he was elected president, he would he would rejoin the JCPOA on the very first day in office. And when Biden did not do that, um, Medea Benjamin and I wrote an article, one of the first ones we wrote after Biden took office, saying that Biden was basically handing the power over his foreign policy to the hawks um, in the blob in in Washington and in Congress, um, and that, um, 
you know, the, the, this was, this really foreshadowed, uh, um, you know, just, just a real control of the Hawks over U.S. foreign policy. In fact, I would say that, uh, you know, the, you can draw a direct line from that early decision by Biden not to simply rejoin the JCPOA uh, to the war in Ukraine today. I mean, in effect, he gave the Hawks the um, <clears throat> sort of veto power, really, over his foreign policy by but by essentially accepting their definition of what it would mean to succeed in the negotiations with Iran. In other words, that it would not be a matter of just rejoining the JCPOA, but, but that he was going to use the leverage of Trump's sanctions and Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA to, um, you know, to, to get additional concessions and, and a better deal for the U.S. from Iran. Um, and, and, and so, so now we really have, in effect, the, the U.S. foreign policy today um, is a foreign policy designed by Victoria Nuland in the Obama and Biden administrations and John Bolton in the Trump administration. It is a combination of those two. It is really, frankly, the worst of both, of both worlds. You know, uh, another thing in here, and they, they're basically, they, they talk about, you know, that the some people in the Biden administration has a fear of anti- antagonizing pro, pro-Israeli P, uh, uh, forces, and of course that would include Israeli forces actually, but here's the thing about that. No, it doesn't matter what happens. They are opposed to rejoining the deal. So, why should you act based on people to, um, it, You know, it kind of reminds me of the Obama people when they'd say, we don't want to do that because Fox News is going to criticize you, as if there's any instance in which Fox News is not going to criticize you, even if you do what they want. They'll find another reason to criticize you. After a while, it almost almost comes across to me as manipulation, as saying, well, I'm not going to do that, and I will use the people who would push back as an excuse not to do and not to expose the fact that I agree with them anyway. Nick, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, you know, what one is, one is really just left wondering, you know, what, what, whether people like Biden and Pelosi and Schumer, uh, you know, really, really care about, uh, <laughs> about the things that they, they claim to care about. And, you know, where do, or do they, uh, or, or, is it that all all they care about is sort of satisfying, um, you know, extreme right wing voices from from Israel to um, to the U.S. and this, you know, the, in in effect with on this issue, you know, I think many people across the country understand that Biden allowed Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin to essentially veto his. Um, you know, the, the, the re- really the core of his whole social agenda, which he had 
he had agreed to um, really a sort of part of, of saying, you know, that he, he could sort of do all the good things that Sanders would do. So, you know, why, why would you vote for a socialist? Um, and, and then he allowed those two senators to simply veto the whole thing. And, 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 he, see, and, and he seems to have put himself in exactly the same position on the JCPOA with Robert Menendez, the Cuban-American, um, you know, Cuban-Americans, by the way, are, you know, the most overrepresented uh, ethnic group in, you know, in the U.S. Senate, um, representing New Jersey and Texas, as well as Florida. And, um, and he, he, he really has just given Menendez a veto over um, this entire policy. And then he has, Biden has strung this out for an entire year, you know, really for the, the only purpose seems to be so that he can kind of turn to, um, you know, uninformed Democrats and say, well, I really tried to rejoin the JCPOA, but, you know, Iran, Iran was not willing to play ball with us, and so, so here we are. You know, in fact, really, the only sticking point at, at this moment is is really an entirely symbolic one about Trump's designation of the uh, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps as a as a sponsor of terrorism. Which is was is completely it's just meaningless uh, smear smear politics to begin with, and um, and and Iran has explicitly offered to say, well, you can still call the Quds Force, which is the 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 arm of the IRGC that actually operates in places like Syria. Um, you, you you know we'll 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 still go along with this if you want to just call the Quds Force sponsors of terrorism. You know you just can't call our entire <laughs> revolutionary guard corps sponsors of terrorism. You know and and uh, uh, you know which Obama never had to begin with. So um, you know so really I mean this is this is absolutely. Um, uh, as you said, I mean, a matter of pure politics, imposing American politics on the world writ large. And I'm glad that you brought up the making the distinction between the Quds Force and the IRGC, because I think by designating the IRGC as a, as a terrorist organization, because they're they're the Iranian military. If your military is an is a terrorist organization, then the military that it defends must be a terrorist organization. So it, it seems as though that's the United States trying to do a real sleight of hand uh, and, and trying to leave itself some leverage in terms of being able to impose sanctions on Iran if the United States went into the deal and then Iran intervened in, militarily in in the situation in in another country, the United States would immediately be able to reimpose these sanctions because this terrorist organization has been involved in whatever conflict they chose to get into. Yeah, but uh, but I mean the JCPOA. This is the whole point. The JCPOA separated out. This is why it worked. It separated out. 
the supposed concerns over uh, nuclear weapons with Iran from all this other crap. <laughs> and, so, and, and, that's, and that's how it works. But they obviously don't want it to work. And also because how angry Israel will be if uh, this designation is removed. And again, this is American politics taking, uh, holding sway over American practicality. And it all and all of this shows it's not really about a nuclear bomb because right. they already know that Iran's not I going to get one. And intelligence of U.S. says they're not getting one. This is about finding a way to constrain Iran and to control Iran. Nick? Yeah. And I mean, I, I have written about this. and I mean, I think I, I, I feel like Obama and, um, you know, the supporters of the JCPOA have constantly shot themselves in the foot. By, by, you know, refusing to really explore that question, which is supposedly the question behind all of this. What, you know, whether is there really any danger of Iran acquiring a nuclear weapon? And, and even the writer of this article in Responsible Statecraft um, that you're talking about, Eldar Mamadov, even he you know, says that, oh, well, the JCPOA, the importance of it is that, you know, this can will actually postpone Iran being able to get a nuclear weapon, whereas without it, they can get one in two weeks. Um, let, let me read something to you real quick. During an appearance on CNN's Lou Dobbs last night, former CIA director James Woolsey claimed that Iran could have a nuclear bomb in a few months. That's from August 15th, 2007. Nick. And that was and that was immediately debunked by the CIA and the National Intelligence Estimate that said no, they have no nuclear weapons program. And in fact, Mohammed El Baradai, the former Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, he wrote in his memoir that you know when he is asked frankly, you know, just by somebody sitting on a plane or something. You know, what is the reality behind this? He says, well, if Iran did any, any research into nuclear weapons, it was during the Iran-Iraq war in the 1990s when the U.S. was helping Iraq to, with uh, chemical weapons that killed about 100,000 Iranians. But the, once that was resolved... They, you know, there's no evidence that they continued with anything of that sort. And not to mention, as we get out, that uh, Ayatollah uh, Khomeini issued a fatwa make, stating that it is against the Quran to develop a nuclear weapon. And if uh, the Ayatollah says that and issues that fatwa, then I think the members of the Iranian government are going to follow. Nicholas Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.